the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is Cool Science Radio. It's science and technology that's accessible and entertaining, and if we can understand it, so will you. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. And this morning, we speak with author and one of Britain's premier naturalists, Stephen Moss, who discusses the 10 birds that changed the world. Stay tuned to hear more about the dodo, the penguin, the eagle, the sparrow, pigeon, wild turkey, and snowy egret, and more. Then we speak with author Maria Smilios, who discusses some unlikely lifesavers from the early 1900s in her new book, The Black Angels, the untold story of the nurses who helped cure tuberculosis. As she says, it's a very human story, one of triumph and one that shows that in times of great need, there are those people who will selflessly risk their lives to take care of others. These two guests, when we return, you're listening to Cool Science Radio here on KPCW Park City. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Lynn Ware Peak, And I'm Katie Mullally. Now, if you were asked to name the 10 birds that have shaped the world, what would you imagine those birds might be? Well, for the whole of human history, we have lived alongside birds. We've hunted and domesticated them for food, venerated them in our mythologies or religion and rituals, and exploited them for their natural resources and have been inspired by them for our music, art, and poetry. Our next guest is naturalist and author Stephen Moss. He joins to discuss his new book, 10 Birds That Change the World. Stephen is one of Britain's leading nature writers, broadcasters, and environmentalists, and he's the author of over 40 books and guides and an award-winning wildlife television producer for the BBC Natural History Unit. Stephen, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, what a pleasure to have you, and what a great time to talk about birds. I don't know what it is about the fall is a time when I really start noticing birds and I don't know why that is. Oh, yesterday a red-tailed hawk just came right in front of our car. Luckily we missed it. But it's it's a beautiful world out there of birds. What got you interested? You were a young boy when you became interested in birds. Absolutely. Well, it's before I remember. Actually, while you're saying why why we get interested in birds in fall, you know, in spring they sing, which is lovely. In winter they gather. In fall they travel. You know, they're migrating. So that's why you're seeing more birds. Um, but yeah, I got interested in birds before I can remember. My late mother used to tell me that she took me to feed the ducks, which is a very classic thing parents do with bored children. I was about three years old and I saw some ducks, only they weren't ducks. I said, what are those funny black ducks? And she said, I don't know, dear, but we've got a bird book at home. And we had a very ancient bird book written in the 1930s called The Observer's Book of Birds. And I discovered they were coots, Eurasian or European coots, fairly like the American coot. And from then on, I was into birds and I don't remember ever not being. Well, you tell the story about you would go to this <clears throat> natural history museum or something when you were young, about seven years old, and, and you would look at this very disappointing replica, I guess it was, of the dodo. And I thought I would start here because I was curious that you would even mention this this bird that has been extinct and full of lore for as long as, as I can remember. Why did you include the dodo? Well, it's the bird, isn't it, that, that effectively sums up extinction as dead as a dodo. Uh, an American wit um, once said, or I quote in the book, once said that the dodo seems to have been invented for the sole purpose of becoming extinct. And I remember seeing this bird. Um, I wasn't disappointed at the time. I was quite frightened by it because it was quite big. It was only many, many years later possibly while I was researching this book, that I realised it wasn't a dodo at all. It was a model. It was um, basically a, a, not even a skeleton. They didn't have skeletons of dodos, for reasons I explain in the book. Um, and so it's basically a load of chicken feathers stuck to some kind of base with a, um, a ceramic bill and false eyes. And it's the most bizarre thing. It looks like a dodo. It, you know, it waddles like a dodo, but it doesn't actually it isn't actually a dodo if you're just joining us on cool science radio our guest is stephen moss he's the author of the new book 10 birds that change the world 
Well, Stephen, we, you know, as a society, we've, we've talked so much about the role of dogs and human development and the partnership with dogs. But is this the first time that someone's really addressed the partnership with birds beyond just decorative plumage? I think, obviously, birds have been written about more than any other wild creature. And apart from dogs, which obviously are domesticated, I would say our relationship with birds is closer than with any other creature, certainly with any other wild creature. And it's partly their ubiquity. You know, what Lynn was talking about earlier, that the fact that you you see birds wherever you go, you're driving to work, you're, you're on holiday, you're visiting a city anywhere in the world, you know, wherever you live, if you look out, you can see birds. I'm sitting in my office, um, garden office in Somerset, and I'm looking out and it's a bit windy. And not actually, I can't see any birds at the moment, but when I can, you know, a sparrowhawk might fly by or, or a raven or whatever. And and there's a jackdaw. There we are. Um, <laughs> you know, you can't avoid birds. Um, and yet, I suppose the mess, one of the messages of the books, book is that we take them for granted. You know, particularly birds like pigeons, chapter two, or the turkey, chapter three. Um, you know, we we sort of they're there, but we don't really notice them. Particularly common birds. The commoner a bird is, the less we we notice it. Paradoxically. So there's, I'm assuming, thousands and thousands of species of birds on this planet, but you chose ten. What was it about these ten birds that made you pick them versus all of the others that you could have picked? Well, you're quite right. There are about probably nearly 11,000 species of bird now, according to scientists. There may be more. They keep deciding there's more, you know, splitting them biologically and genetically. Um, I didn't pick 10 to start with. I sort of had a short list or long list, if you like, of 20 and whittled them down. What I wanted was I wanted to have a bird, each bird needed to represent an aspect of human society and culture so for example the first chapter is the raven and it's about mythology now i could have picked the ibis which is famous in in you know sacred ibis in in egyptian mythology um perhaps the quetzal uh in central america but the raven for me was the one species that absolutely permeates all northern hemisphere mythology from alaska all the way across the americas europe and asia all the way round to, you know, Japan, you know. So this is a bird that that is in all the sort of primitive prehistoric mythologies and yet is also a key character in Game of Thrones, the book and the series. So, we, you know, it's in The Simpsons. We still have modern mythologies. Um, and so that was an example. Communication, obviously, the pigeon. Food and family and feasts, the turkey. I could have picked the chicken, but I wanted something... I'd written about the chicken already. I wanted something perhaps more unusual um, and certainly appeals, of course, to the American market, which is great. Um, so, you know, each bird tells a story about an aspect of human life and they have to be different aspects. I did have the nightingale in there, which, as I'm sure many of you, your listeners know, is is an incredible songster, probably the most iconic songster and singer in music and culture across millennia there were two problems with that one is it's a very anglo-centric cultural bird if you like you know it's obviously not found in america and it's not written about there um and it doesn't quite have the same meaning perhaps and also a friend of mine sam lee had written a really really fantastic book on the nightingale and he's a musician so he'd written this wonderful book about it and i read his book and thought i'd just be rehashing this you know i want to do something original so the nightingale got dropped actually more or less at the last minute and something else came in to replace it it's interesting to hear how you how you chose and why you chose one of the stories that really jumped out for me something i never heard of before was about the tree sparrows in china in the 1950s and how chairman mao decided to obliterate this bird, which led to a huge crisis among humans. As you talk about how these stories are relating back to humans, can you talk about that story? Absolutely. I think it's my favorite story in the book. And paradoxically, as you say, it's probably the least well-known bird. It's the Eurasian tree sparrow. It's not a very well-known bird, even in, in Britain and Europe. We know it. But we don't here we associate it with rural areas. In China and Southeast Asia, it's very much an urban 
Blackbird as well. Um, and in the late 1950s, Chairman Mao, obviously the supreme leader of China, uh, was struggling. Um, harvests weren't as big, yields weren't as big of food, people were facing starvation. And he found out that um, tree sparrows eat a lot of grain. And he did. A, someone did a calculation, told him how many lives would be saved for every million sparrows that were killed. So he put out an order. And if you're a supreme leader, you know, it's not like in America or Britain where our supreme leader puts out an order and everyone ignores them. Um, in China, people just said, yeah, okay. And they went out and killed the sparrows in their millions, obliterated them. And the following year, they discovered to their horror that tree sparrows feed their young, not on grain and seeds, but insects. Insects had a massive population boosting, insects like locusts, um, predatory insects, which of course ate all the, the, the grain. And there was the biggest famine um, in world history. And in fact, the biggest man-made disaster. More people died in less in a year or two of the, the terrible harvest than died in the entire First World War globally which is an extraordinary statistic. Um, and of course, I, I met one extraordinary woman, a British woman who's still alive, half British, half Chinese, who still lives in London. And I went to visit her, Esther Chow Ying, and she told me this extraordinary story of being one, the only person who said, this is a really stupid idea, um, and got shunned by her colleagues and workmates and friends, and you know, et cetera. But of course she was right. Um, it was a terrible idea, but it just shows what can happen if you give people too much power. Something fairly relevant to Chapter 8 as well with um, about the bald eagle, which uh, mentions a certain former US president and uh, his um, way of using eagles to echo, if you like, the Nazis. Oh, that is very interesting. Well, you better launch into that story. And and I actually didn't know that the bald eagle was featured in Nazi propaganda. So how, what, what's the connection? Well, the bald eagle wasn't. It was the eagle generically was featured. Oh, in, the eagle. In okay. Propaganda. Yeah. Um, but it's the same principle. Eagles are powerful birds. They're strong, powerful birds. They're, they, they have a reputation, if you like, of being the top of the tree, the most majestic of birds. Of course, as Benjamin Franklin pointed out many years ago, the bald eagle shouldn't have been. He'd said, I don't want the bald eagle to be the symbol of um, the USA because it's a scavenger. It, it, it steals food from other birds, which is true. But yeah, the eagle has always been a symbol of power. And that power has ranged from very benevolent power to rather more sinister power. And certainly the Nazis used the eagle as a symbol. And they used it with the swastika, of course. And their eagle, unlike all the other eagles in history but one, looks out as you're looking at it to the right. All the other eagles, the Holy Roman Empire, the Romans, the Greeks, etc., looks to the left. And it turns out that Donald Trump picked the eagle facing the same way with a, a symbol remarkably similar to the, 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 the Nazi's eagle symbol with sort of perched on, a, on a, an orb, if you like. And of course, when people complained about this and made the analogy with the Nazis, he could say, well, you're, you're being anti-patriotic. You're, you're having a go at you know, America's national bird. So he sort of won both ways. Um, but it was clearly a, a signal to his followers. Um, and people, when they invaded the capital, they, they, they were wearing T-shirts with bald eagles on. So it's interesting how a symbol can have a very um, powerful, if you like, morally good meaning to it. For example, the eagle, the bald eagle, was the mission pad for the brave Apollo 11 astronauts, something I remember as a child, something, you know, very America rightly is very proud of. And yet it can also have this rather sinister, very negative impact. And it really depends how we use birds. And that's what this book's really about. It, it's, you know, we use birds at our peril. We, we use them as symbols. We use them for food. We use them, you know, in all sorts of ways. But we need to be careful that we're allowing the birds to be birds as well. Well, you talk about the fact that birds have played a political role in society and culture and specifically you think about you give credit to the snowy egret that really helped create the foundation of modern bird protection and conservation um tell us how that came about 
Well, absolutely. I mean, the snowy egret today is a relatively common and familiar bird, very beautiful bird. It's equivalent to our little egret that we have in Britain and Europe, very, very attractive bird. Um, but it nearly went the same way as the passenger pigeon and the Carolina parakeet. It nearly went extinct. And the reason it went extinct, or nearly went extinct, was that um, there was a massive boom in ladies' fashions for rather well-off late 19th century, early 20th century women to have feathers in their hats and indeed even effectively stuffed birds in their hats. It was all very bizarre, wearing hummingbirds as brooches and things. And egrets, um, when they're breeding, they produce these beautiful plumes, actually known as aigrettes, um, which were hunted. Of course, the birds were hunted horribly cruelly. The birds were literally raided at their colonies. The feathers were pulled out and the birds were just thrown in the water to die. Uh, and of course, then their youngsters, which didn't have the plumes, they died of starvation. And a man called Guy Bradley, who's an extraordinary man, he'd been a feather hunter. He'd helped, the, as a young man, he'd helped the, the people who made money out of this very cruel trade. And he turned into like a poacher turned gamekeeper. He'd become of one of the very early nature reserve wardens in Florida. And one day he went out, found a guy he knew and his sons who were killing egrets, caught them red-handed and they shot him, they killed him. And he became the first martyr for conservation. And it shocked America. This was in Florida and the story got into New York. It went to the other, you know, the California coast. It was in the papers all the way across the United States. And people were really shocked that a man who was just trying to stand up for the law effectively, he was a ranger, you know, a, a warden, was killed. And that led, it, the Audubon Society was already going, the bird protection movement, but it really gave it a boom. And fairly soon afterwards, the fashion for wearing feathers more or less disappeared. And the snowy egret, from the point of really the brink of extinction, managed to come back. So that's a that's a very positive story. You know, I like to introduce positive stories in the book. They're not all negative, but I'm afraid our relationship with birds over the years has led to some really horrific things happening, like the the killing of the sparrows and the famine in China. So, you know, we, we I try to balance things, but in the end, the story is is fairly bleak. But we've also used birds for their droppings to help us develop our agricultural systems. Guan, Guanane Comorant, is that how I pronounce the bird? Yeah. And how did that, what was it about the bird's droppings that really helped advance agricultural practices? Well, bird droppings are the original phosphates and nitrates. You know, they're incredibly rich in the chemicals we need to produce high crop yields. However, all around the world, where birds, seabirds nest in big colonies, it rains. And when it rains, the droppings wash away. So you could harvest them, but it will be quite difficult and you wouldn't get very many. But one exception to that were these islands off the coast of Peru in South America back in the 1860s and 70s. Um, the British, a British trader called William Gibbs um, started importing guano, as it's called, uh, basically bird poo, all the way to Europe and also it was sent to America, it was sent to the rest of Europe um, from Britain. And it turned out to be the most extraordinary fertilizer, which the Incas had known, you know, this has been known for years. And it eventually it became too expensive and too difficult to import and the Peruvian government sort of stepped in and stopped imports of it. But by then, farmers in North America and Britain and Europe had got used to having these extraordinary substances they could put on their crops when they were growing and produce much higher yields. And effectively, that kick-started the agricultural revolution, the chemical revolution of the early 20th and mid-20th century, where scientists realised they needed to develop a synthetic um, fertiliser, which they did. Now, that was good in many ways, you know, allowed um keep more people to be fed cheaper food unfortunately we took it too far and it led to the terrible situation we have in north america and europe now where many areas of particularly arable farming are more or less wildlife free zones you know we've destroyed the wildlife and we're in hot to all the chemical companies mentioning no names obviously for legal reasons um who effectively create a situation where the farmers have to buy their chemicals to produce the yields that the um, supermarkets, et cetera, want. Um, and, and so it's led to cheap food 
farmers not being paid enough money for what they should be paid for, for all their hard work, and people eating less good food, and wildlife not being there. So we've sort of lost out on all levels. And that's a very topical story, I think, in, in America as well as Britain now. The industrial farming. You know, it's interesting when you're talking about the guano. It's funny, I, I always think of bats when it relates to the droppings. And still, I, I still believe that bat guano is used quite heavily in agriculture, isn't it? That's right. I and mean, bat guano is the same. You know, again, yeah. it is a colonial animal. If you find enough bats in the right caves, which you have in the United States, yes, you can harvest their guano as well. So it's still used. And even seabird mm -hmm. guano is still used. Um, you know, and again, it's how we exploit not just wildlife. In the case of the guano cormorant, they exploited the people who harvested it, who'd been basically told they were going to California for the gold rush and ended up in Peru and being worked being worked literally to death, you know, which was a, a very sad and, and terrible story. Yeah. You know, we started off by talking about the extinction of the dodo as sort of a, a symbol of extinction. And then we talked about the snowy egret as sort of the model of the first, you know, modern conservation movement. But we haven't really talked about the emperor penguin yet, which brings that story of possible extinction full circle, doesn't it? Yeah, Emperor Penguin is the last chapter in the book. And in a way, it's the one bird in the book that hasn't changed the world yet, but could do. In that the Emperor Penguin, rather like the polar bear in the Arctic, in the Antarctic, the Emperor Penguin is the sort of poster creature for climate change, the climate crisis. Because although Emperor Penguins are Basically, they've been incredibly successful at doing what they do, which is breed during the Antarctic winter, um, which is unique amongst any creature in the world. And it's worked very well until now, when we are changing the whole climate and, and ecology of the Antarctic. And that is going to cause huge problems to the emperor penguin. And potentially, it may die out by the end of this century. And, and that, that seems like a very long way away, uh, certainly to me, um, except that last year, my eldest son, um, he and his partner had a child, my grandchild, Sammy. And Sammy's still going to be in his 70s in the year 2100. And if the emperor penguin has gone extinct by then, which many people predict it will, then it's not a world that I want him particularly to have to experience. Because if the emperor penguin goes extinct, it really means it's curtains for humanity. So I think the emperor penguin is there really as a metaphor for all the birds that, you know, and the, and the story of the book, you know, my friend always says, you've told me the story, what's the story of the story, which is a Henry James quote. And the story of the story is when you mess with nature, it will mess with you back. You know, do not think that what you do with nature is cost free, which humanity has done more or less since the beginning of time we have exploited nature in different ways and maybe we should now turn around and realize that if 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 the world is good for nature it'll be good for us mm. well the book is 10 birds that changed the world it's already met a lot of critical acclaim one review that i read it 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 talked about how this this person feels like they look at every bird differently now, having read your book. And and that's essentially what you want to end up with, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, I made television programs for many years. Millions of people would watch them. And people would say, oh, I love your program. But of course, it wasn't my program. It was a whole team of us doing it. The lovely thing about doing a book, I have a brilliant team behind me. I have an agent. I have fantastic publishers at Basic Books in, in New York. But of course, it's a very personal story. What you write is very personal to you. And so when someone says, either in a review or personally, I really enjoyed your book, it's lovely. You know, it's one of the nicest things that can ever happen. Um, so, yeah, I've been delighted by the reviews, including one this week in the Wall Street Journal, um, which was very favourable as well. So, yeah, I really hope does well in the United States. I hope so. It's got a lot of good stories that relate to North America and its history and culture. It sure does. Stephen Moss, thank you so much for joining us on Cool Science Radio. Thank you, Lynn. Thank you, Katie. Really enjoyed it. Welcome back to Cool Science Radio. I'm Katie Mullally. And I'm Lynn Ware-Peak. 
Nearly a century before the COVID-19 pandemic upended life as we know it, a devastating tuberculosis epidemic was ravaging hospitals across the country. In those dark pre-antibiotic days, the disease claimed the lives of one in seven Americans. In the United States alone, it killed over 5.6 million people in the first half of the 20th century. An untold story until now is the story of some unlikely lifesavers who, in 1929, were called to help by the frantic city officials of New York City, where the epidemic was the worst. Joining us is author Maria Smilios, who tells the story in her new book, The Black Angels, the untold story of the nurses who helped cure tuberculosis. Maria, welcome to Cool Science Radio. Thank you for having me. Good morning. All right, so we... We all know about the 1918 Spanish flu, of course, COVID-19, but I don't think a lot of people, especially myself, really knew about this tuberculosis epidemic. How was it, you know, um, ignored by society or history? Well, back in the turn of the 20th century, tuberculosis was rampant and everybody, it was killing one in seven people people understood that it was a big deal. There was nothing that could be done about it. It had just been in 1882, Robert Koch had identified the microbe. We were at the cusp of germ theory and the people living at the time knew tuberculosis was a problem. It stirred their most potent fears. So we in today's world don't know about this epidemic because there's a lot of myths surrounding tuberculosis that it's 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 gone. It no longer affects people. That's not true. Tuberculosis is actually the number one infectious disease killer in the world. It killed 1.6 million people last year, and it sickened 10.6 million people in TB-heavy burden countries. In the United States, we're lucky. That number sits at under 10,000 people who have been affected by tuberculosis last year, I believe. We didn't know about the tuberculosis epidemic that happened because once they, the cure was found in 1952, tuberculosis, the hospital, Seaview Hospital, where the story takes place, closed by 1961. And so once we had drugs, people started to get well. And so stories like this fly under the radar, not just because of the disease, but also because this is a story about women in science. And it has been for many years a male-centered narrative where all the accolades hung on Dr. Robichek and the men involved in this. And they deserve the accolades, but the women who work the front lines also deserve the accolades because it, as Robichek said, this would have never been possible. And by this, I mean the trials that happened at Seaview for Isoniazid without the black nurses. Well, tell us more about these Black Angels and their role at Seaview Hospital because they are the focal point of this book and they they had a huge impact on the discovery of the cure for, tubercul for tuberculosis. So the Black Angels, in short, were a group of African-American nurses who were called up by the city of New York starting in 1929 when the white nurses at Seaview began to quit. And there was no real particular reason the white nurses started quitting. Some of them cited the long commute, Staten Island, what did not have a bridge at the time. So you needed to take a ferry. So the commute most likely involved a train, a ferry, and then a bus to see if you, it was up on an isolated hilltop, 400 feet above sea level. And they others cited the long work days 12 to 14 hour days others cited they just were tired of being in a place that was people lived in the shadow of death people died all all the time every day one one um patient who was part of the trial said to me at one point if you looked out the window you could see 10 to 12 hearses lined up at any given time waiting to take the bodies away and so they also got tired of risking their lives. You know, at, at the end of the 1920s, white working women had a lot of opportunities that were not offered to black nurses. Um, they the, the nurses were able to quit their jobs and work as librarians. The New York Telephone Company had just put up their new building. And so they were, were, you know, why should I risk my life 
working in this place. And so the city at the time had caught the death rate of tuberculosis from 10,000 at the turn of the 20th century to 5,000. And the commissioner of health was not going to let this on, on his watch go back to 10,000 people dying annually. So his choice was either close down Seaview and let loose a thousand, over a thousand people who were, you know, really, really sick, grievously ill, or call up the next level of workers, which were black nurses, because the black, black nurses had problems finding jobs due to Jim Crow. Most of them were only allowed to work in black hospitals. At the time, there were only about two, a little under 300 black hospitals versus something like 6,000 white hospitals. And even the white hospitals that hired them, they had a quota, they were abused by supervisors. And so the city thought, well, you know what? The great migration worked for laborers. Why don't we bring up these professional nurses? And the nurses began to come. If you're just joining us on Cool Science Radio, we're having a conversation with Maria Smilios. She is the author of The Black Angels, The Untold Story of the Nurses Who Helped Cure Tuberculosis. And at Seaview, it's funny, when, you know, when I was reading through the sort of the history of Seaview, that it was a tuberculosis sanatorium. And it seems as though we don't use that word sanatorium anymore. And we don't. And so, and, and essentially, so a sanatorium in those days was if you were diagnosed with tuberculosis, you were sent to this place to rehab or in many cases die. Um, but then the hospitals were also segregated still at that time, as you talked about black hospitals. Were black and white patients together at Seaview? So Seaview Hospital was one of four hospitals in New York City. At the time, there was a discrepancy. Either there was 29 or 26 municipal hospitals, but only four allowed Black nurses to work there. The patients at Seaview were integrated. The population was made up mostly of immigrants, people who lived on the fringes of society, um, what they then called Bowery bums, um, people who who lived in poverty and because it was free you didn't have to pay for it and so if you can imagine these were big giant open wards there were rows of beds on either side and at some point it became so overcrowded that there were rows of beds down the middle of the aisle and the only thing separating one person from another was a tiny little nightstand and so you were out in the open. One patient said to me, if you wanted privacy, you were not going to find it. The wards were the great equalizers. And so people of all races, all nationalities, and all ages, 16 and up, lived on the adult ward. And then there was a children's hospital that was built in 1937. And that housed all the, the babies, the toddlers, the little kids. Um, and so it was an integrated hospital that took care of the people who lived on the margins of society or what the city considered second-class citizens, really. Um, mm -hmm. They called them incredulous, quote, incredulous consumptives. Incredulous consumptives, wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so you talked about the, the pathology for tuberculosis was discovered in the late 1800s. The cure came around 1960. Is that right? So the cure for tuberculosis was, was I'm going to, it wasn't the cure at the time. The, the fact that isoniazid worked happened in 1952. The drug needed to be tweaked over the next eight years. And this, and Seaview started to close in 61. So once they finally got the combination of drugs working, then people started to close these sanatoriums. Um, and and in 1882, when the microbe was, when finally Robert Koch laid eyes on the actual bacteria for the first time, people started racing at that time to try and find a cure. They were like, oh, we finally saw it. We know what it is. Uh, we know it's not caused by anything hereditary. It's airborne. And so fast forward, it took probably 70 years for, for it to come to fruition. And then 
I mean, even today, the, there's multi-resistant tuberculosis. That's, you know, that isoniazid it doesn't work on. So there's different types of tuberculosis, which people don't know. It's not just a disease that affects the lungs. It affects the brain, the lymph nodes, the spine. Children particularly suffer from spinal tuberculosis. Um, there was a guy in Seaview who had tuberculosis of the tongue. His tongue swelled up really, really big. He couldn't close his mouth. Um, so it's a disease that affects the different parts of the body. And isoniazid doesn't work on, on all of those parts. And it, it then the microbe is so beautifully rendered. It's not only designed to torture, but it's designed because it has, it's encased in a waxy coating. It's very hard for antibiotics to penetrate that coating and, and, and it becomes resistant to other, and the treatment for tuberculosis is, is long. Even today, in today's treatments, it's it's months and months of drugs. Well, there are so many great science books out there, the history of science. But this seems like we, it, it, sometimes it feels like we've we we we've learned it all. We've we've uncovered all of these great stories, but not for this one. I was fascinated with reading about how you even discovered the story. Tell us about that. I was working as a science editor. And I came across a line in a book I was editing on lung disease that the cure for tuberculosis was found at Seaview Hospital. And I'm a native New Yorker. I love stories about hospitals and disease. And so I Googled it. I didn't know this. And up came an article about the cure at Seaview. And then tucked alongside of it was another article about a woman, 86 years old, Virginia Allen, who was part of a group of nurses called the Black Angels. And I thought, who are the Black Angels? And I tracked her down eventually. We started talking and she asked me to tell this story. It had, her aunt was, her aunt Edna was one of the first nurses who came up. And Edna drives the narrative. She starts the story of the Black Angels. And Virginia came up in 1947 when there was a second nurse shortage after World War II. And she carried this story with her for a very long time. And she had asked me to tell the whole story and that's how it happened. Well, these women came from the other hospitals. They probably came from segregated educational facilities. Were they properly equipped with education and tools to actually go into Seaview and help the patients at the time? So it depends. Edna, um, Virginia's aunt, had worked in what was considered, it's a charity hospital, and it worked on this barter system where students went in, they gave their labor for free, and then they were trained. But these training schools were not the same as nursing schools. And so really, when Edna started working, so part of the deal of bringing up these black women from the South was Seaview promised them housing, good pay, and education. Seaview was very well connected with Harlem Hospital. Um, Harlem Hospital at the time had one of the few uh, black. It was a, a it was a black training school for nurses, and it was very very well respected. Harlem and Lincoln Hospital. And so they had a deal that the nurses that needed more training would go up and work at Harlem and, and go to school. Again, that was another barter system. And so Edna needed a year and a half of training, whereas my other main character, Missouria, came from Howard University, a historically black college. She did not need extra training because she had the three years of rigor in their nursing program. And so it varied, depended on where you came from. But Edna went to Harlem and she eventually was, uh, she became a surgical nurse and was basically running the surgical ward by the time she left. So these women were extremely, some of them were extremely well-trained when they arrived and the ones that went to Harlem went back to CFU extremely well-trained. These were nurse, uh, what today we would call nurse scientists. Mm -hmm. And then there's the on-the-job training portion mm -hmm. oh, yeah. as well, you know, which is invaluable. How many Black angels were there overall, and what period of time? I mean, you talked about Edna coming in, I think, 1947, mm -hmm. and then all the way down to, you know, her her niece, Virginia, who came, obviously, much later. How many overall? So 
That's a hard question to answer. A lot of newspapers cite 300 nurses. And when I looked at the city lists, the nurses, the, the city has broken down. You know, if starting in the 20s, they have um, they have nurse helpers, they have nurse aides. So they have these categories. And it's really hard for me to say, for me, the story starts for me in 1929 and ends in 1952. But but CV didn't close till 1961. So anybody who worked after 1952 is also, a, for me, a black angel. It, it, you know, I'm not putting any um, parameters on who can and can't be considered a black angel. Um, but for my purposes, I needed to end the book somewhere. And I, I needed to end it in 1952. Uh, there were hundreds, hundreds of women passed through there. You know, and then there were the aides, the nurses' aides. Virginia, who came in 1947, started off as a nurses' aide. Um, and those young, she started at 16 years old, and the aides were critical for, you know, to help the nurses in their day-to-day -day tasks. Because it could take some people who were really, really sick, who couldn't, you know, sit up or brush their teeth or bathe themselves, the nurse could spend up to three hours bedside with one patient breathing in. I mean, if you could imagine, there weren't masks or PPP equipment. They were just breathing in these germs. Yeah, that was one of my questions. Were I mean, they were exposed to tuberculosis. How often did they contract it? All of them tested positive. Um, and so tuberculosis, this is interesting because probably a lot of people have latent tuberculosis. It means that you you have contracted the virus, but your body is able to contain the bacteria. It just kind of sits in this little, it, it it's encased, you know, the cells around, it's like a little cell wall, and it just kind of sits there, dormant. And then something, if pregnancy tends to, you know, your, when your immune system is weakened a little bit, can set it off. Um, and other illnesses, autoimmune illnesses, um, HIV positive tuberculosis is one of the, I think it's the, one of the leading comorbidities for people who have HIV. Um, but a lot of the nurses, Edna, they lived well, well into their late 80s and 90s. Um, there were nurses that died, but probably less than people think. You know, they were not, the nurses were not dying by the droves. They were getting sick. Some of them actually got sick and then got better, but they took really good care of themselves. They did whatever they could do to mitigate it. At the time, there were no drugs, you know, until like the mid 40s, World War II was the first drug, streptomycin. Um, but that only was a temporary fix, streptomycin. So, how was TB, how was the TB cure discovered, and what was the role of the Black Angels and Seaview Hospital in that discovery? So, for years, people had been working on different types of drugs to try and, and combat the disease. Um, they knew that this drug, streptomycin, which was very expensive to make, it was, it was not a man-made drug, um, worked, but it, it after three or four months, it stopped working. Um, the actual isoniacid was, the compound was made at Hoffman LaRoche, which was about, it was in New Jersey. It was, a, you know, less than like 20 miles from Seaview. And at the time, drug companies worked with hospitals and said, hey, we've got these drugs. Do you want to test them? And so Hoffman LaRoche in May of 1951 called up Dr. Selikoff, who was Dr. Robichek's partner, and said, you know that drug we're working on? Well, it's looking really good in mice. Do you want to test it on humans? And they said, yes. Seaview was a really good place to test drugs for drug companies because it had an, a whole array of different types of tuberculosis. People were of different ages. And then the sad part is a lot of these people were considered expendable. Yeah. And so they flew under the radar if the drug didn't work. There wasn't somebody ready to start screaming that the, the hospital killed my mom or dad or grandma. No. And so they said yes. And they began what one journalist described as the most grand exper human experiment in medical history. 
this drug had never been tested on human beings. It was just tested on mice and 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 some other animals, monkeys and guinea pigs. And they brought the drug to Seaview and they started off with five patients. The criteria was they had to be mortally ill. Death had to be imminent. No other treatment could work. And they started off with five patients who were called lungers. Lungers were people who had been in and out of Seaview. One of them was Hilda Alley. Hilda was 20 years old. She had been in Seaview, a total of, at that time, almost five years of her life had been spent at Seaview. Um, and there were five other patients. And so the nurses' jobs were to be on the front lines. The nurses were, as Dr. Robichek said, they knew more than the doctors because they stood on those front lines every day. They were working there for decades. They knew the nuances of the disease. They knew how it ebbed and flowed. They knew how it could sneak up. They knew if somebody just from the sound of their voice, the pallor of their skin was getting sicker, getting better. And their job was not only to give the medication, it was also to make sure mentally, emotionally, physically, look at their bodies. Is, are there any side effects happening? What are their moods? Um, are people, you know, when they when they first started to see the moods start to elevate, they were like, they 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 kind of stopped for a moment and thought it was a little bit odd because people are were not necessarily happy at Seaview. Um, and then they from those initial five patients that they, they went on to add another 92. And that's where the nurses, you know, more nurses were brought in. They, they brought the patients to two wards. And their job was really all of the notes that they took, they handed off to the doctors at the end of the day. And the doctors amassed them together. And Dr. Robichek's son gave me his father's archive. And you can see in handwriting, like who is, where the side effects start to happen. What are the side effects? All that came from the nurses' information, from observation, from talking to people. So without them, it none of this could have been possible. Well, and, and these women went on to do more than just fight tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. They went on to fight against housing discrimin discriminatory mm -hmm. housing practices, discrimination in healthcare. Beyond just the TB discoveries, what other lasting legacy did they leave? So that is a Really great question. The, the legacy of the Black Angels is simply the people they helped with the cure and their impetus for integrating and making changes in nursing and medicine in general. On a more subtle level, their legacy is the, the significance between frontline labor and medical science. I also want to add that after years of interviewing their families, they left a legacy to their families and the generations of nurses who came <clears throat> after them by helping to break down barriers and again integrate the profession of nursing. I hope with this book they'll become part of the official legacy of Seaview and the cure story. So I think that's the legacy they left behind. Um, the more broader question is what I hope people take away from the book, which is that ultimately this is a very human story. It's one of triumph, one that shows that in times of great need, there are those people who will selflessly risk their lives to take care of others and by doing so keep us safe. You know, Virginia told me once, or actually many times, um, we're all we have, you and I, so we have to preserve that by taking care of each other. And this is what the Black Angels did, and their actions saved tens of millions of lives and changed the course of history. It's such an incredible story. We've got to let you go, but I just wanted to make a quick comment. You know, we are so tired of COVID after three years and look at the decades upon decades that people had to deal with tuberculosis being very front and center in life. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's It's not just decade, it, it, tuberculosis they found reaches back now to Homo erectus man. It's one of the most ancient diseases around and I think if there's one thing we we can learn from this story, other than what I had just said, is that we can democratically work together. The world can unite because this was a worldwide problem. And and if we saw this with the vaccine, people work together and, and they made progress. And I think that's another thing that the nurses did. They worked together and they 
helped eradicate this disease in many, many countries. Um, and so thank you so much for having me. It was so much fun talking with you. Well, our guest today is Maria Smelios. She's the author of The Black Angels, the untold story of the nurses who helped cure tuberculosis. Again, this is on the lines of hidden figures, these stories that we don't know about that we all should know. And so thank you for bringing this story to light. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Have a nice day. And thanks for tuning in to Cool Science Radio before we... Uh, sign off today. We wanted to get everyone excited about the annular solar eclipse. Katie. Yes, exactly. It's only about two and a half, three hours away. So if you get up really early on the morning of the 14th, that's October, Saturday, October 14th, and head south, if you're coming from Park City, go down I-15 and the junction between I-15 on 70 and Rich Richfield. So you'll go wet or east on 70. So that area between I-15 and Richfield is the best place to observe the solar the annular eclipse. Um, and looking at the data, it says it'll start around 9.06 with maximum coverage, if you will, starting at 10.26, lasting about four and a half minutes. That's a pretty amazing four and a half minutes. I say well worth the drive. So go down, bring some chairs, find a nice little spot to pull over and Look up. Oh, and bring really good sol proper solar glasses. You can get them on Amazon. I'm sure the planetarium has plenty. You don't want to look through a CD or last time people were looking through a Cheetos bag. <laughs> I don't think a Cheetos bag would necessarily be NASA approved to look at That's the sun. Strange. I just ordered mine on uh, or on Amazon, but NASA approved a five pack. It was thirteen ninety nine. Mm -hmm. So you know they're cheap, and uh, I, there is a place that all Utahns can go and see the the trajectory. Kind of goes from the northwest to the southeast. Again, it's the annular eclipse. You will see a tiny ring of the sun around because it's the moon passing before the sun and the earth. And uh, we're going to talk more about it next Thursday with Tyler Nordgren on Cool Science Radio. So tune in for that. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll all be down there. That's right. Maybe maybe we'll see you. Yeah. <laughs> um, stay tuned now for National Public Radio News. You've been listening to KPCW Park City. And thanks for tuning in.